really got to try on that left hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more, all about the world of rugby. As always, I'm your host. My name is David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, I would love to hear from you. I'm on the dumpster fire known as Twitter, at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, also on threads under the same moniker. And of course, you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. Well, as you have no doubt guessed, this is not your regular weekly episode, but is in fact yet another fabulous bonus episode. And this time, I'm thrilled to say that we are being joined by best-selling author, TV pundit, journalist, and all-around All Blacks expert, and lifelong player of both Rugby Union and Rugby League, it's Mr. Jamie Wall. Jamie, how the heck are you? I'm great. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Not at all. I really appreciate your taking the time. Uh, I, I know it's already 10 o'clock where you are, so I appreciate your carving out some time to just have a little chat. Um, of course, so I did some exhaustive research, and I learned that you are currently the vice president of the Ex ExxonMobil Corporation based in Washington, D.C. So what's that been like for you? <laughs> uh, oh, gee. Um, uh, not great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so of course, I, I screwed that up. It's actually Ms. Jamie Wall, who is in fact the VP for ExxonMobil, whereas you are the author of at least four books centered around New Zealand rugby. Does that sound closer to the mark there? Yeah, that's better. And um, congratulations to my namesake. She's always having a very successful career. Um... <laughs> she might have stepped over to the dark side. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you're right. Um, yeah, I've uh, been uh, writing books now for since 2019. Uh, the first one came out, and uh, it's been really good fun. Uh, just uh, doing something I love and being able to produce something that's I can wake up and look at on the bookshelf every morning. It's it's a really cool feeling. Four books in four years. That's nothing to sniff at, too. That that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of uh, like things have just fallen into place when it comes to writing books. I'm not sure how much experience people listening might've, might've had, but I think you just need to be really dedicated and you just need to set a word count every day and you need to map out mm. like, well, if I start here um, and if I write X amount of words every day, I'm going to finish at this point. And if you can stick to it and do that. And like I said, I was lucky enough to have a lot of time on my hands um, to be able to do that and a very generous publishing offer as well. Um, you know, been, people have been really good to me. Um, I can't thank them enough for it. I've been able to uh, churn those out and it's been, it's been awesome. The, uh, I, I'm not an author myself, but I'm told that that discipline is one of the key things. Stephen King has a great book about being a writer. And I think the phrase he uses is like, you need to have a door you're willing to close. You need to be able to say, nope, I'm going in here. Nobody else is allowed in. This is my time. I need to get X done today. I mean, is that sort of how you approach it with just as much discipline as you can? Yep. Yep. You're right. And uh, Stephen King obviously knows a lot more about writing books than I do. I can tell you that much. And <laughs> But uh, that's he's succinctly 
put put that put into words just imp- how important it is to be able to just sit down and just start typing and just stick to your rhythm and 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 some days it's some days are harder than others and some days are just like it feels like the the greatest feeling in the world uh but then nothing beats being able to sort of put at the end on it and 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 hand it over it feels great was there i'm curious after your first book came out and you're like and i can tell you were very proud of it um was there a danger that you're gonna be like okay i've done it now it's easy now it's more fun now i don't have to treat it like a job or did you were you able to keep that sort of focus in to make sure it's it's your job it's do what you're doing every single day that's a good question um i mean the first one i did was called brothers in black that came out in 2019 so i got started on it uh late 2018 and it went about as well as it possibly could have been for a first for a first go uh and then as soon as it was finished i moved on to the next one which was the story of the all black season um called heroics and heartbreak well it eventually ended up being called heroics and heartbreak it was originally called it had had a working title of chasing glory uh which uh was all going to be about how the all blacks won the world cup that year (laughs) i was going to say the working title was three in a row but, but of course they didn't and so it would, that was a really interesting experience because I was writing a story that the end hadn't happened yet. I didn't know mm. what the end was. Uh, and so a lot of that I was writing literally as it happened. It was more of a diary than anything else. And um, that's, I have to be honest with you, I think that's the one I'm the most proud of uh, because I had to adapt to the way that I was I was writing it. And it became more about um the personalities and and sort of intricacies of the of the team that season and the reason i'm most proud of it is because it stands as like a pretty as close as you can get to an exact historical record of that so mm. in, in in 10 20 years people want to know what happened that season that's your first hand source material I mean, I'm way off script already, but how shocking was that for you? Like when England won that semifinal, were you like, oh my gosh, like my, 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 my fandom and my plans for this book are both derailed at the same time. Was that a really shocking evening for you? Not really. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was shocking. Um, you know, it, it is my, in my job as a journalist, you have to be dispassionate about the way you cover mm. the team. You can't get upset if they lose and you can't be sort of overly happy if they win like you're, you're happy when there's something to talk about and mm. the all blacks losing a semi-final is, is in new zealand anyway is is the one of the most notable things that, that can happen so it created a lot of drama and a lot of intrigue and like a lot of questions a lot of, mm. a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet to be honest with you um so it's just it was more about taking that quite momentous event and putting it into words that's a really interesting take i hadn't even thought of that um i do want to talk about your books but before i do that i really want to mention your website it features only one photo it's a picture of you with the ranfurly shield please please tell the story of how you were able to bring the ranfurly shield home with you i'm really glad you asked actually it's something i haven't thought about in a while uh but it is quite pertinent because i'm from wellington uh i don't know how many people listening know about the wellington province's 
uh, lack of success at the highest mm. level. They are a first division union in New Zealand, and obviously being the capital city, they are a team that should have done a lot better in their in their in their time. Um, they've always been sort of there or thereabouts. I think they lost something like eight finals this century. Wow. Um, Ouch. And there was a very there was a very long time between the the years that they held the Ranfurly Shield. In fact, the year that they'd last held the Ranfurly Shield was the year I was born. And so that photo t- was taken in 2008 uh, when uh, Wellington won the Shield again. I, I was lucky enough to be at that game. And it was also the last Shield challenge of the, the season. And the thing about the Ranfurly Shield is you want to be holding it at the end so you get to keep it Mm -hmm. for the summer and that means you get a nice long tenure with it and it means the union can sort of use it to 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 do stuff with and because the wellington union hadn't had it for so long they were determined to get it out into the community as much as possible because it was like well once the season starts we're not gonna we don't know how long we're gonna have it have it for Mm. and so you could go to the union and you could put your name on a list and uh on a waiting list and you got to take it home for for the evening really and uh so we got it um got a phone call and went down to the union and just grabbed it and we just had just provide some contact details and uh we took it out and i spent i spent the afternoon driving around to all my friends houses and taking them to their house and getting photos with it and and then that picture was taken at my dad's house, and yeah, it's a really nice picture. I'm really, really proud of it. Just uh, sitting there with the Ranfurly Shield, something I hadn't thought I'd be doing a few weeks previously, but there it was. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. I can't believe they they let fans just take it. Like, I can't, I can't believe the thing still exists. I, to be fair, I, I did have a little bit of an in there. My partner at the time worked at the Wellington Rugby Union, so. They weren't just giving out to anybody, but um, <laughs> if, if it was for they, it was for schools, um, for you know community groups, um, businesses. If you wanted to bring it along to your car dealership to, you know, for a Saturday sale or something, you know, that, wow. that would be the way of getting people through the gate. But um, because because we yeah had that in with them, I was able to chuck my name on the list. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty cool. The Ranfurly Shield is such a cool tradition. I'm just such a big fan of it. Like it's, it's one of those things that is so distinct from American sports. There's just no even rough equivalent, and so it makes me sort of more fascinated with it. Um, I don't know if you know the the rugby historian Dr. Tony Collins. In one of his books, he talks about how it actually originally depicted a cricket ground, and they they added the posts later to that little image. You probably got a chance to see it up close and personal, obviously. I did, yeah, yeah. We had a good, good hard look at uh, all of the engravings and everything. And um, one of the other interesting things about it is, there's a couple of teams on there that don't exist anymore. Oh, um, that that held it a uh, hundred years ago. I guess the the most uh, obvious comparison to it is it's, it's like a a boxing title that you have to mm. beat the person who has it in order to. Um, to take it and the, and the person who holds it has to has a mandatory defense um yeah they yeah have to, they have to put through so and it's something cool that uh exists within provincial rugby alongside the actual provincial 
competition, which is obviously just a, uh, a regular season followed by a po- uh, playoffs and then a final. Yeah, it just adds such an extra layer in there. It's like an extra thing to follow. I, and I imagine if your team isn't necessarily doing well on the league table in general, you still have a possibility. Well, maybe we can grab that shield where, you know, last year Hawks Bay held onto it for a long time. I think it was. so. It's yeah, cool too thing. long for my liking, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's it, the, the, cool thing, the cool thing about the shield as well, uh, and I think – for Americans, it'd be kind of like drawing up your um, your NCAA tournament brackets. Um, mm. Is that you can you can figure out uh, every stipulation of who might get a challenge of the shield, depending on all the results oh, right, right. Uh, that might happen. So, if Wellington had lost their first game this year to Southland, then whoever plays Southland next, all of a sudden gets a challenge. So it's not set in stone at the start of the year. Like you can kind of look at it and say like, well, Wellington are probably going to beat Southland. So therefore the next defense against Tasman is going to be the, the difficult one because the Tasman better team, but it could all be up in the air. And so if you're Tasman, you're hoping that Wellington win that first game. So you get your crack um, the next week. Or if you're North Harbour and you're playing Southland next, you're hoping they win. So it creates a lot more interest in the games uh, that are going on um, from fan from fans of other provinces. Well, I was I was joking on my show that let's see, Wellington were away the first three weeks this year, or was this th- this was week three, right? Um, yeah, so I, I was joking that they they weren't doing any home games to start the season just because they wanted to make sure they held on to it just a little bit longer. But we've got one defense in the books now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, also, at the moment, it's a very um, uh, messed up uh, season just in terms of teams, uh, the main teams in the main centres, uh, because of we've, uh, New Zealand was co-hosting the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup. Right. And so, therefore, the Auckland, Wellington, um, and Otago's uh, stadiums oh. were out of, out of use. So, all of those teams had played their first round games away so now they'll be back at the. Oh, at the okay. I I hadn't thought of that. It, it it looked weird to me, and I just had never uh, pieced it together like that. That's very interesting. Um. So we've already alluded to it. You are the author of Facing the Haka, Heroics and Heartbreak, and the best-selling Brothers in Black, and most recently The Hundred Years War, which I very much enjoyed reading over the last couple of weeks. Um. Can you tell my listeners about that book and and like how it came about? How did the idea come about, and how did you end up, you know, going through the process of writing? What's a, a heavy historical document yeah so the 100 years war was a real passion project uh for me it was um it's it's a history of the all blacks against the springboks which for new zealanders and south africans is the most important rivalry in all of rugby really and i think for a lot of other people as well it is and it was a story that i really wanted to tell uh, from my own perspective and I was originally going to go to South Africa to do a whole lot of research over there so uh, I had not been before but of course we had that situation with COVID that sort of didn't, didn't allow Thanks me to well. do that so I I did it from from home and it kind of changed the way that I, I did the book it was very much looking at it from um, a New Zealand perspective 
and saying, well, this is our side. This is our side of the story. Um, this is this is a very uh, uh, something that's very very important, not just for rugby New Zealand, but also to New Zealand society because of the mm. uh, uh, political implications that came with um, having a sporting relationship with with South Africa uh, through the apartheid era. And I just wanted to talk about it from someone from the point of view of someone who grew up in the aftermath of all of that and someone who could sort of just, I remember what it was like uh, back then. And I remember coming out of it and, and the Springboks being reintroduced to New Zealand as, as, as our big rivalry after mm-hmm. uh, a period of isolation. And so that was how I wanted to tell the story. And it's something I'm very proud of. Um, like I said, it's a passion project um, for me and it was released to coincide with not just the 100th anniversary of um, the first game between the All Blacks and the Springboks, but also uh, the 100th Test match that that, uh, ended up being played that year as well. Uh, So it all worked out uh, quite nicely uh, in the end in terms of um, uh, the book title and and everything, because it made for a nice title. Uh, yeah. And like I said, I'm I'm very I'm very happy with it, uh, and it's also something that hopefully in the future I can do an updated version um, on at at some point. So I, I I'm glad you're here. I wanted to tell you it's a great read. Um, it's exhaustively researched, but despite you know the enormous litany of dates and facts and documents and quotes, it very much holds up as a as a narrative story. It reads more like having a conversation with an expert than sitting and reading a textbook. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, so how do you, what's your trick to maintaining that balance as a writer? How do you manage to include all that information that you're really trying to get across while not letting the tale itself sort of get bogged down? Well, thank you. I, I mean, I appreciate that because that's what I wanted to do. It is when you are talking about history and you are talking about score lines and dates and and politics and 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 it's something that I'm a big fan of his, uh, military history as well. I read a lot of books uh, about um, World War Two and, and and things like that. And you you do run the risk of it becoming quite dry uh, if you just focus on what happened when. You have to you have to talk about the people involved. It's about the whole thing's about people, and it's about explaining. Yeah, it's it's really hard for us to look back at it now and go, why were the All Blacks playing the Springboks when all these all this awful stuff was happening in South Africa? And you have to try and I think a lot of it challenged the way that I thought about that situation as well because I had to put myself and look at it not through the lens of someone in the twenty first century. It's you you have to try and look at it like, okay, what were people thinking back then? And I mean, I'm never going to know that. I'm ne- I'm never going to, but you got to you got to at least kind of try. And I think the more that you do that, the more relatable um, the text becomes. And also tying it to events that were happening around it as well to give you a bit of context. Yep. around things it's not just about like because that's the whole th- the whole story is it's not about rugby really it's it's not it's about this this huge much bigger thing 
that was going on and and the research that i did like i said it really challenged the way i thought about it because i was like oh wait this isn't about rugby this is about like conflicting political systems and and oh wait all of a sudden the cia is involved and this isn't really actually it's it's not so much about apartheid as it's about the cold war and you know i don't want to give away like everything but it's once once i sort of came to that conclusion it's like now i get it now i kind of understand Mm. why people were so uh just so motivated to keep this thing going because of what was what it was really attached to well there's there's so many famous quotes from players when you know in the middle of apartheid when new zealand is still playing these tests against south africa new zealand is up in arms the world is decrying it and you you hear from the players and there was that universal theme of uh hey man i'm not political i'm not interested in politics i'm a rugby player and i just want to play rugby and obviously you perhaps with this book know better than anyone that's that's impossible right you you can't just say no 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 it's separate because it's it's inextricably intertwined right yeah yeah you're right and it's it's interesting though because i mean that that sort of stuff still it's actually quite relevant right now you know yep. when you talk about uh issues that are facing us side and i think as an american you probably know this probably a lot better than than what we do i mean if you look at the events of the past few years with the Black Lives Matter um, solidarity movement that happened among professional athletes. I think that that's a really interesting comparison to to what was going on, where it was like, well, you're right. Like, you know, if you're an all black back in the 1970s, 1980s, and you're getting hassled by people saying you shouldn't be playing against south africa you're a racist you know you're 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 supporting a racist system and like you said it's like man i'm just playing rugby it is kind of it is kind of hard to get too emotionally upset about about what they were thinking back then when you look at today and you've got you know, because I was just at the the women's football World Cup. I watched the USA team play. A very political, politically minded um, group of yep. athletes, and it's it's not as straight up and down as you might think. You know, taking a stand. And there were All Blacks that that just removed themselves from that situation completely. Some some very prominent All Blacks that just said, "Nah, I don't want to be a part of this because I don't agree with." what's going on over there and their teammates respected them for that but also the respect was shown back the other way from the guys that said out said my it's my choice not to be part of this it's your choice to be doing this to be playing and then once the tour was finished they got together and played and it was as if nothing had nothing happened and after i feel like at the end of the day that's that's a really beautiful part of sport that you can go through that and then you can just the next weekend just kind of kick a ball around and just pretend kind of nothing's happened because mm. on one hand, yeah, you're right. They are sport and politics are completely intertwined. I mean, to me, they're, they're basically the same thing. That's why you walk out behind a flag and play your national anthem at the start. It's about representing your country and what, what your country stands for. So it's inherently political, but then at the same time, like we don't watch sport, uh, for for politics or do we 
you know, it's 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 really it's 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 a really uh, granular argument. You know, it's 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 really yeah. it's a really interesting one because it's like yeah, we see it as an escape, but at the same time, and I think again, like you're an American, you know this better than I do, is that a lot of what sport is is actually representing what your beliefs are, whether you like it or not. You know, um, when you look at you look at what the NBA represents, right? It's 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 a it's a liberal minded, uh, you know, forward think. Well, at least you know it's what it's this is what it's portraying itself as. Yep, you know, forward thinking organization, and you know you compare that with say I don't know the SEC conference and NCAA, which which it very much represents you know southern way of life and what they hold hold dear to them themselves and things like that and they're very they're just very different things you know or, or like nascar you know like and and it's how they point. bring in religion into the whole thing you know it just yep. that's why a lot of people are into this and it's and it's why going back to the all Blacks and the Springboks, that if you were a rugby fan who was okay with it and you're happy to go along and and watch them play knowing full well what was going on in South Africa at the time, you were kind of badging yourself with, you know, like just at least some sort of um, acceptance that, that their political system didn't bother you that much. Right. Yeah. There's the, uh, you mentioned the NBA, there's the, the famous Charles Barkley quote where he said, I am not a role model. And of course the public outcry was, you're a role model, whether you want to be or not. It's just a fact because we see you on TV all the time and so on but uh anyway you've already kind of alluded to this new zealand's history with south africa at least in rugby terms i guess the word would be is fraught um there were times when new zealand was willing to sort of look the other way when it came to the horrors of apartheid even as the rest of the world was loudly condemning it you talk a lot about this in this book it's really great i, I do love the way you sort of I think it comes through where you sort of stand on it without you getting up in arms or, you know, you know, waving a flag or banging your fist about it. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, on a personal level, as a native Kiwi, as a rugby player and a fan and as a writer, like, how do you feel about that legacy? You know, inside, how do you feel about that? And uh, I mean, I don't think the rivalry between the two teams would mean as much today without it Interesting, because it's something that i think the all blacks and the Springboks have gone gone through together and they've come out the other side and if you look at what the Springboks used to represent to what they now represent it's Rainbow Nation. such an incredible turnaround you know it's such an incredible uh just just flipping of the script yep where they went from representing kind of like everything that was wrong to now being this this and i don't want to speak for because i know that there's a lot of south africans are still obviously very against the springboks like they still see them as as uh, a symbol of a regime that made their lives you know much much worse than what they did and i, I completely understand that but from the outside looking in, you know, the Springboks have a, a black captain right now who's regarded as one of the greatest players in the world. And he made that team on merit, you know, and they have so, there's so much love 
for that team, you know, from from their fan base. Uh, it's quite unique, really. And and for now, for the All Blacks to play against them, it, it just means something quite quite different because it's it's much more what when you when you hear about all the good things about rugby, about bringing people together and and being able to sort of bash each other up on the field and then all be friends off uh, afterwards and 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 have respect for one another. This to me embodies it more than anything else, like more than any other uh, any any anywhere else in the world. And I think it's a really unique thing. And I think that, but without all the crap that that happened, you know, and it was a massive deal, man. Like you got to understand, New Zealand's a small country. It's a young country. It's it's tucked away at the bottom of the world. Not a lot goes on there. And for the amount of uh, people that just were willing to stand up and go like, no, nah, we're not okay with this. Like we don't we don't want this to happen. We're going to go out on the streets and risk life and limb um, from an extremely aggressive police force to protest oh, yes. against. The enforcement um, was extreme. Yeah. 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 And, and to protest against this uh, is, is something that a lot of people these days look back on and kind of almost can't really believe happened because of how mm. placid New Zealand society really is. And then, so like I said, to come out the other side and then when I was growing up to have the Springboks come back, into our consciousness and be told like, Hey, we can do this without feeling bad about this. Now it makes it feel so much better. Mm. It's funny too. The, you, you already mentioned Sia Khaleesi stories of a guy like Khaleesi of, you know, Makazoli Malpimpi. Some of the stories that came out during the 2019 world cup, it's genuinely moving stuff. It's hard not to wave a rainbow flag and get behind them. On the other hand, it's still really fun to root against them. It's still really fun to think of them as the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, you're right. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, if, you know, I, I think that uh, you, you'd be hard pressed to find New Zealand who would enjoy losing the Springboks. But at the same time, they are the one team that All Black fans are, I guess, okay with losing to. Like. New Zealanders are notoriously harsh when it comes to critiquing all black losses. You know, they're expected to win every single game, but yeah. losing to the Springboks is definitely one where as long as it's not done in a, you know, disgraceful fashion, um, then it is the one game where it's like, Oh, well, it's okay to lose to the, those guys. Cause they, they play as hard as we do. They get it. They understand it. They play the way we, the play the way they play the way we play with that same sort of attitude. It's not playing against Pomps up here because they're a bunch of like rich, rich private school kids. It's not like <laughs> playing against the Irish because they're a bunch of whinging whingers. It's not like playing against the French because they're just dirty, you know, like this one means, it means the most. And it means the most because of the history and because of everything that had gone on before. And that's why I think that it just carries that, um, carries that really special special bond between the two the two the two yeah. countries and i and i don't think it's something that obviously other countries have rivalries with one another you know like they they, they, they all exist and it's some it's ones ones that i probably can't understand from a if i didn't grow up in that country 
I wouldn't really be able to understand it the same way someone does. But for us, this is why it means best. And also, <clears throat> it means the most because they are the two most successful teams in in the history of rugby. They've won yep. the most World Cups. Um, they The games that they've played, especially over the last 15 years or so, have been among the best tests ever. So you can't really argue with the... Um, the product that they're putting out uh, as well as the history that they can draw from. It's interesting in a way you might've already answered this, but um, you know, from its very early days, a hundred years ago, clashes between what we now think of as the Springboks and the all blacks. If they've often been looked upon as battles for the very top place in world rugby, for me, those contests still feel that way, even though, you know, other nations might occupy higher spots in the official world rankings. Do you still feel that way? And do you think most New Zealanders would agree with you? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I, I think that uh, right right now, um, given that the Springboks are world champions, current world champions, um, being able to beat them means a lot to the All Blacks. And I think going back over history as well, because there was no World Cup back in the days, uh, because both the All Blacks and the Springboks would be able to go up to the UK and beat all the teams there, then therefore it would come down to who would win between those two uh, for like an unofficial championship of the world mm. uh, at the time, and that's why it's there's so much so much was written about the tours. Uh, back in the day and and there was so much writing on it and and just how much it it really gripped New Zealand society uh, at the time because I think that rugby tours for us uh, in our in our society are very unique you know it's, it's probably it's not something that Americans really probably um, experienced uh, no we up. play we play all our sports right here and then declare ourselves world champions <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, you, you probably are the world champions of American football. I don't think there's any. I do think that. Yeah, um, <laughs> baseball probably not anymore, but yeah, but but I think that there's something inherently special about rugby tours. It's a shame they don't really exist anymore, apart from the, the British and Irish Lions. Mm. Uh, but but I think that the the Springbok tours and um how they went from being incredibly important for a rugby perspective to incredibly important from just a political uh, perspective uh, just shows how how big a deal rugby is in, in New Zealand and in South Africa as well. So in the book, you, you make it very clear how important the success of the All Blacks is to sort of the overall, I guess, sense of cultural identity for New Zealanders. Um, from the way you described it, the entire nation was a bit shell-shocked after losing an early tour against the South Africans. Is that still things uh, how things are even 100 years on? Oh, I mean, uh, you know, the New Zealand society has evolved. <laughs> you know, like we're not we're not the same country we were 100 years ago. Uh, some parts of it are, but uh, the the uh, <laughs> I think that um, it's a reflection on our society. Like, obviously, rugby still plays a massive part in in our our culture. It's the number one sport. It's it's you know it's why we have stadiums basically it's it's what's on tv all the time it's who our, all our celebrities are uh but i don't think the reaction to the all blacks 
winning and losing is is probably as ingrained as it, it used to be. It's probably a lot got a lot to do with the demographic of New Zealand as well. You know, there's just been a lot of immigration over the last few decades, and that's fantastic. You know, it's just, it's, it's really nice to have a much more multicultural society mm. uh, that that we can we can we can put ourselves out as a more sort of progressive um, country. Uh, but you know, it's still a big deal uh, when the All Blacks play. They sell out every game that they play. Um, you know, and some, and some, we have some pretty big parks um, down down home, and so, so yeah, it's it's just. Um, I think I think to answer your question, like it's different. It, it's it's not the same as it as it used to be, because there, you know, like we have obviously TVs and and you know other <laughs> other things we can do <laughs> than than camp out, out camp outside rugby grounds uh but um you know like we've got the world cup coming up in a, in a couple of weeks and it's going to be the biggest story in new zealand for you know as long as the all blacks stay in it so I, i'll put it that way so we have another chapter another test in the storied history just this coming weekend on the neutral ground of twickenham i i can i safely assume that's why you're in england right now to cover that match Yes, yes, good guess. Um, that's that's why I'm here. Uh, we we've been here uh, following the All Blacks uh, little um, their little media crew. Uh, go, I saw out. the Ted. I saw some of the Ted Lasso picks. They were great. Yes, yes. Well, Richmond, uh, the the suburb of Richmond in London is not far away from where the All Blacks are based in the southeast. Um, there, it's not far. It's sort of um, just up from Twickenham itself, um, where they're playing. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be back back here. It's my third time up here covering the All Blacks in London, and it'll be going to be really interesting this weekend going to Twickenham and not watching the All Blacks play England because for me, for me, Twickenham is it's this is the most imposing venue as a New mm. Zealander going going out. So I, I guess everyone else probably thinks it's Eden Park, but for me going to Twickenham is really special is, you know, it's the biggest stadium. It's, it's, it looks amazing. It's, it's really cool being inside it. Uh, and they, they do a really good show. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what it's going to be like when, because it feels like every single New Zealander who lives in London, and there's a lot of them is going to be at this game. Um, and also feels like every single South African is going to be there as well. So that's going to be a, quite a cool atmosphere. I reckon quite unique. So I I really love that I have a chance to ask you about this. So just last week on my weekly show, I was saying how I don't really understand the value of playing this match at this particular time, at least. Like, I, I love watching New Zealand versus South Africa. It's my favorite matchup. Um, but I would have thought both these teams wouldn't want to really show anything before. We're so close to the World Cup. You'd think you just want to keep your powder as dry as possible. On top of that, you know, these are often brutal contests. Injuries are a big risk. Please, you know, set me straight on this. Apart from the value to fans, which is enormous, I can't wait to watch on Friday night. What is the value of these teams facing off before things kick off in earnest in France? Well, there's a couple of couple of reasons. I'll start with the rugby reasons, um, because mostly because uh, you have to look at the last time the top all-black team actually played a test, which was almost a month ago. Uh, and they're gonna. They need. They need a warm up game before they 
go in and play against France in that first game. And then you looking at their schedule, um, you know, with all due respect to Italy, Namibia and Uruguay, the All Blacks are going to go in as heavy favourites against those Yep, those teams. Um, and before that, and so those are three games that they will win quite comfortably. Before they then have to play their next most important game, uh, again the next important game, which will be a quarterfinal. Who that's against? them, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to know because I might change my mind on it every day. But the, okay. but the reasoning behind this game is is simply because uh, they've they need. They need game time. Um, the the last time the top the top team was put out was in Melbourne for that Blazo Cup game. The second Blazo Cup game in Dunedin, they rotated to give their wider squad members uh, a go. For sure, uh, and uh, it's kind of the same for the Springboks as well. They've they've known a pretty interesting team, but um, that that's the the rugby logic behind it. But of course, the the main logic behind it is that the New Zealand rugby um, stand to make a hell of a lot of money out of this game ah, uh, because is. there's a <laughs> there's a shared gate taking between the All Blacks uh, between New Zealand rugby and um, South African rugby uh, so, and Twickenham holds 82,000 people so you times that by uh, 100, 150 pounds each and then divide it by two that's why they're having it there yep that, that kind of makes a ton of sense um, so recently when I saw how good the All Blacks were looking in the rugby championship, I said that it, it was strange that nobody seemed to be talking about them. Like at the time, I think Ireland and France were still one and two popular opinion seemed to be that it was inevitable that one of those two would go on to win the world cup. I said it could be very handy for New Zealand that they're coming in so loaded w- without much attention on them at all. And then just yesterday, I get to pat myself on the back a little bit and feel like a smart person because you, an actual expert, wrote a piece titled All Blacks Fly In Under the Radar and That's How They Like It. How the All Blacks managed to Jedi mind trick the world into forgetting about them? Well, probably the results over the last couple of years, to be honest. Um, they've, they've had a lot of work to do to regain the confidence of the of the New Zealand public and so the narratives coming out of New Zealand after the bad results that they had especially last year uh it just goes to show how how much losing affects the way people yeah. perceive um the All Blacks and it's taken them what how many how many tests have they won this year like five five in a row and and very good wins as well yeah um in order for people to go actually say like, Hey, actually, you know what? I think, I think we're a pretty good shot of winning this. Obviously we've had a lot of drama around the the coaching, um, a lot of key players as well. Uh, But it all feels like it's falling into place at the right time uh, right now. Uh, And I think another thing that New Zealanders have a bit of an issue coming to terms with is that World Cups, a lot of what happens at World Cups is completely out of your hands. Like, yeah. they, they, the All Blacks have no control over who they're going to play in a quarterfinal. And all you have to do is look at the last one to see that the All Blacks probably did the Springboks a massive favour by beating them in the first game. So it sent them, it sent them to the other side of the draw. And they had a clear run in, in the quarters. They had Japan, you know, 
a brave Japan team, but they're not going to beat the Springboks. Um, they had a they got a Welsh team in the semi-finals who were so injured that they almost had their bus driver playing for them. And then they got a and then they had an English team that had played their final the week before in the final. And you know, again, respect to the Springboks for doing what they had to do to win. But that kind of came about a lot of a lot of what happened to them was was not of their own making you know i wondered about that too i'm i'm pretty sure i'm right about this that when south africa won the 2019 world cup that was the first time the winning team had lost any games i think every team that had won the world cup in history had won every game in their pool stages too and you know when Springboks lost people say oh it's over you can't win the final if if you can't win every game in your pool stage and they proved everybody wrong and like you said ended up on the other side plus they had things to look back on and say you know what what else can we work on um anyway it was it was a really interesting result it was it was a it's funny like i already said that it's it's easy and fun to look at the Springboks as the bad guys except when they're playing against england so that was a pretty fun final for me yeah, well, I was there. I was I was at that game, and um, I was definitely supporting the. I was I was, I was hoping South Africa would win, and also, I mean, just from a wider perspective, I think, you know, seeing Khaleesi holding up the trophy at the end, I, I remember sitting there in the stands and thinking, like, him just doing that is making a massive, massive difference back in yeah. his country right now. It's 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 that's a country that needs that a lot more than say England. Uh, needs that no disrespect to English rugby I mean I'm, I'm happy to disrespect English rugby but what that moment mean moments like that mean a mean a hell of a lot they go a lot further uh, in a place like South Africa yep um, so now that I have finished the Hundred Years War I've got Facing the Haka and Brothers in Black both sort of sitting in my shopping cart um, it, this is kind of a weird question but can you advise me which one should I get first <laughs> uh uh depends um i think brothers in black is a, is a really good one because um i tried to tell the story of the history of the all blacks through all of the siblings that had played mm. for for the team um and i think that I'm I'm really happy with the way that it would it, it came out. Um, conversely, you might want to get facing the hucker because maybe if you just want to look at some pictures because it's a big coffee table book. So oh okay yeah. So that's uh, uh, it's up to I, you. I'm glad you said that. So I, I'm very curious about facing the hucker. The hucker still seems to create controversy in an almost cyclical manner. It almost seems like you can just look at a calendar in the wall and think, oop, about time for people to start calling for them to get rid of that again. Like, I love the haka. I always look forward to it. And, I mean, I agree that it's a bit of an unfair advantage. But for me, you know what? That's tough. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, what's your take on all these arguments about getting rid of it, toning it down, making it a home-only thing, all these other things that you – how do you feel about the haka and its future? Uh, gee, I mean, it's a big topic because it sort of goes beyond rugby itself. Mm. Um, but I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way: like, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stop doing it. You, you can't. It's the most famous part of, like, the most famous team. So yeah, why, 
could you could you imagine what it would be like if they went to Cardiff or 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 Twickenham and the All Blacks ran out and there's like eighty thousand people there and they didn't do the hucker? Like, <laughs> that, that that is having been in Japan and having been in Argentina and you know even in Australia and stuff. It's like that's why that is literally the reason why a lot of people go to the games. You know that's why they're paying the money because it's part of that whole um the the experience and also you know i mean like my counter argument to anyone that says they should get rid of it has always always been uh, that rugby's this game that prides itself on tradition and and you know holds really firmly to that you know almost well actually completely to a fault because there's a lot of traditions that they should definitely you know that are holding it back and have held it back over time but if you are really like uh, you know serious about traditions well the huck is the oldest tradition there is in test rugby it predates national yep. anthems and uh it, 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 it's actually the reason why national anthems are played because that's when the all blacks first did it back in 1905 the welsh responded with their national anthem and that's why we have them now uh as far as like unfair advantages go well there's nothing stopping any other team doing their own version of it and that's why Samoa, Tonga, Fiji all do theirs you know yeah. there's nothing there's nothing stopping the United States uh <laughs> you know well I mean you have your own indigenous culture I I, I understand the way that they've been treated uh, over the last couple hundred years or so but oh yes you know there's there's not there's 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 nothing stopping you engaging from from the those um those cultures and 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 taking something from it uh like like we like New Zealand did with the hucker on the on the other hand though i think from a new zealand um point of view it's it's almost the way that new zealand has marketed itself like right from the beginning like cuz you got to remember that the New Zealand teams first started touring the the concept of New Zealand as a country had only really just begun huh. and so the idea of the reason why these teams were sent out into the world to and back back to the UK was to go hey this is what the colony of of New Zealand like this is why we sent people over there this is what we've done over there this is why wow. um and it was the same with the Australians and the South Africans. That's that's how the concept of touring came came about because it was a way of going back and, uh, you know, politicians would would follow them, businessmen would follow them as well, and it was a networking event and and all this stuff would come out of the of the tour very much in the same way that you have corporate lounges at at uh, big sporting wow. events now, and so um, the hucker being a part of it was just us showing like this is what makes us unique and as it's gone on over the years uh, i think you know as someone who's maori and uh you know someone's proud of proud of that culture that's our shop window to the world it still is you know like how and what other culture in the world has that exposure that every time the most famous sports team in this in this sport we have plays and it's watched by and they're watched by millions of people every time they do it they get that at the start of every game. 
like you can't take that away from us that's it's that belongs to us that's and if you if you do want to take that away from us you can get fucked because we're not doing we're not we're not going to stop doing it <laughs> Uh, that that was the best defense I've ever heard. I, I I'm done listening to the counter arguments. I think you have absolutely wrapped that one up. Um, I am curious though the um the Kappa Opango, I've read. You know, a lot of people complained, uh, sort of early days, about what they saw as the the throat slitting gesture at the end, and that this even then led to sort of an official inquiry of some kind. The author of that haka, Derek Lardelli, he explained that it's not a throat-slitting gesture, but is meant to be, as he put it, quote, drawing vital energy into the heart and lungs, unquote. Um, it's my impression that the official inquiry was was satisfied with that explanation, but kind of said, hey, guys, can you just tone that bit down a little bit? And for a while, it seems like they did. But now, you know, particularly, you know, Rico Ioane, Artie Sabia, it's almost a hyper-exaggerated throat slit where do you stand in the Kappa Opango? And please correct me if I've butchered that little uh, mini history. No, no, you you got that you got that one pretty much bang on. Um, I mean, I've never really understood it. Um, you you're you're worried about a guy doing this before you're about to have a game of rugby against him. <laughs> That's what you're worried about. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, in saying that though, like. I remember when that that happened because um, the All Blacks actually debuted that haka uh, in 2005, and uh, it was against the Springboks. Yeah, uh, and it was well for a while. It, they kept it in reserve, and that, that's not a that's not a um, coincidence either. That was very much on purpose. And yeah, and what we're saying they before, kept it in because... reserve for like the big fixtures for a while there, right? It was mm. like, well, the, these three tests aren't as <laughs> it was, big. It was determined that it would be done first against the Springboks because they were the All Blacks' greatest rival. Okay. And that said a lot because the Springboks never complained about this. Mm. It wasn't until they played England at Twickenham that it became a, a big deal. And <laughs> like everything else, and then it went back to the whole oh, should they be doing the hacker at all? Nonsense. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I kind of get it that for people who are unfamiliar with it, yes, it looks threatening and whatever, but like I said, it's a game of footy. Like, you're going to get tackled and smacked around and potentially get your arms and legs broken, you know? Like, it's a tough sport. You're worried about some guy drawing his thumb across his neck? Like, what the hell, man? Like, just grow, grow a set. Like, just, just get over it. <laughs> well, Artie in particular, though, he, he's been really enjoying those little sl uh, throat slitting gestures recently. Like, what's gotten into him? All <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah, with the, the super rugby. Yeah, well, that that yeah, definitely yeah. was what you thought it was when that when that happened. <laughs> yes, that was that not was an intake quite, of breath. That was quite funny, um, uh, because he sort of immediately knew what he. Oh, what you he, could see it on his what face. What he done was what he did was wrong, and he had to come out and sort of apologize about it afterwards. But yeah, that was, uh, he, and he's he's often in the in the times he's faced the media since he's sort of made made a few self-deprecating oh, yes. remarks about it. So so he knows full well that what he did was wrong, and um, he's able to joke joke about it, which is quite a quite a nice uh, trait, I think. 
Yeah, I, I just had to throw that in there. I mean, Artie, in all honesty, he's probably my favorite player on earth. He's For me, he's just indescribably good. But as I was kind of making that note, it occurred to me, as someone whose job it is to cover the All Blacks, you're tasked with doing exactly that, describing the ways in which he's so good. Do you find yourself sort of running out of superlatives with a guy like Artie? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's he very really has a bad game. His game, some of his games are just better than others. Like he's, mm. he's uh, so the most important thing about him is just how consistent he is um, across Super Rugby uh, and, and across uh, Test Match Rugby as well. Um, I yeah, I don't think I've ever seen him have a bad game. Yeah, his motor uh, and... is just so next level. He just doesn't stop. He, I've often described him as like a tumbleweed made of barbed wire. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely is. He's and he's all arms and legs, and just the absolute last guy you want to have to try and tackle because he'll he'll hurt you. Yeah, he runs into you. So and also his his pace is something that's quite um, underrated as well. The, the one thing I will say about him though is. He's a he's a human highlight reel, you know. Like you're going to get something awesome out of him every game, but I think it draws it draws a bit of attention away from the sort of blue, more blue collar work that the other guys are doing um, mm. on the field. And I think that you know I don't want Artie to stop doing what he's doing, but rugby fans should probably be sort of having a look and going like he probably wouldn't be able to do that if Kane and and whoever's playing open uh, blindside, rather, are, uh, are doing their jobs as well. Interesting. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, uh, Ian Foster, he currently has New Zealand playing incredibly well. Um, despite being a, a lame duck coach, I know everyone is super excited for Razor to get at the helm. But was Fozzie a little bit hard done by here? Like, um, yeah, you're going to be here. You need to coach us through the World Cup. But by the way, then no matter what, you're out. It, it seems like a weird position he's in here right now. It's a very weird position because it's never happened really before. Um, no, no All Black coach has actually ever been fired. I don't know if you, you knew that. Um, huh. But um, a couple of them have been sort of showing the door and, and been told to, you know, like, we're not going to renew your contract. And a couple of them have just fallen on their swords when things haven't been going right. But no one's ever been fired. And Ian Foster came as close as possible to being the first one last year. And I personally think they should have done it. <laughs> I oh, think that okay. they, they, every, from a New Zealand rugby point of view, every time the All Blacks lose, there's like a financial hit that they take to the brand the brand value suffers um when they when they do it and also i think that the the thing about scott robertson is that it's not just a rugby thing with him um it's really going to kind of change the perception of the all blacks quite a lot in, hmm. in new zealand like it's going to get a lot more people kind of thinking a bit more deeply about them and because he's such an engaging guy I mean, I feel I feel a little bit bad saying that because Foster is a good dude and he he's obviously, you know, they're winning. You know, you can't argue with that because really that's the bottom line. But at the time they weren't, you know, like and, and the mood the mood back home was, was really, really down. It was all centered around the uh the Australia uh, the uh Irish tour. 
yeah, I feel like losing that series was a turning point. Absolutely, because the All Blacks should not be losing Test series at home. That's that's it's actually uh, you know it's the first time that it happened since 1994. Wow, uh, and only I think the fourth time ever um, that it had you know a team had come down, been on a on a multi-test series with the All Blacks, and it actually won. Um, it was the first time the Irish had ever beaten the All Blacks in New Zealand. Right. And, and then they did it again a week later. Uh, and so for us as New Zealanders, we're seeing things that we'd never seen before. And it's 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 difficult, you know, like, because you got to remember, it wasn't that long ago that Ireland had never beaten the All Blacks and that Irish right. tests were seen as the All Blacks would just roll up, you know, Ireland might score a try here and there, but they'd, they'd win. You know, so to so to to be seeing Ireland as a threat is still something a lot of New Zealanders are kind of still getting used to. You know, the Irish they look really good. Um, Jamie, this is so awesome. You've already taken more time than I had asked you to. Um, but be- before I let you go, can we talk a little bit about uh, Fozzie's thirty-three? Do you have time for that? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So when you look at the selection list for the World Cup, I mean. <sighs> What can you even say? It's an absolute murderer's row. Every name on it is a, oh, wow, that guy. But there's a ton of big names that didn't make that final cut. Um, who are some people that you were surprised to see left out? Well, I think top of the list would be Sean Stevenson, who yep. had such a great year for the Chiefs. I was not alone in, in presuming that he would have been the bolted-on you know, starting fullback for the All Blacks um, this so. year, and he wasn't even selected in the initial um, initial squad. He did make a test debut uh, eventually in the in the last game, but that was only because of um, it was injury cover, being brought right? in because of because of injury cover. So I think that he's been pretty unlucky, um, especially considering that he was weighing up an offer to go to rugby league uh, oh. last year. And presumably turned down quite a bit of money um, in order to stick around and pursue his All Black dream. But I feel like he is going to have his day in the sun coming up. Um, but it was pretty. It was pretty considering that All Black outside backs are just generally picked on whoever scores the most tries. He'd be pretty muffed at, at not not being in the frame. Um, another guy uh, from the Chiefs as well, Brad Weber. I, I think he's really unlucky. Uh, considering, considering that you know the All Blacks always go with three halfbacks, and you have the two guys on the game, and it's kind of like the quarterbacks in, in the NFL, where you have the the other guy holding the clipboard, and yeah. uh, what you, I would have gone for more experience in that department. Like no one's moving Aaron Smith out of the the nine jersey, but when you need someone coming off the bench, I would have thought Weber would have been a really great option because of his experience he was co-captain of the chiefs uh and his kicking game is really strong they've gone with finley christie instead who to me is a very similar player but just mm. with less experience so couldn't get my head around um that one either and and it, it, it must be so weird too it's like brad weber i mean the emotions the guy must be riding right now it's like oh maybe i'm gonna get selected i deserve it i'm probably gonna be in there oh wait i'm not in the all blacks i'm not going to france and now I'm playing in the NPC. And I love the NPC, but that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. And uh, it, it, it shows the measure of a man that he actually went and did that, you know, played for Hawks Bay where he, where he grew up because he didn't have to do, he doesn't have to, if he doesn't want to. Like he's, he's signed a contract um, to go play in France. So he could have exercised an opt out um, mm. early release uh, out of that, but no, he's back. He is actually here uh, as part of the wider, uh, what is like just as injury Oh, that's cover. right. That game last weekend so, was his last. Yeah, game yeah. So while, he yeah. he he is here now. So he might figure in this game on Friday, maybe. But um, and then you know because he he's just going to be around. He he might get pulled in to the to the World Cup squad. But I mean, you know, they've got three halfbacks there. I'm not sure why, but. Again, just back on the halfbacks, though, <clears throat> I like Cam Roygaard. He's, he looks great, and he had a really mm. great season for the Hurricanes, but just he, he's inexperienced as well. So if Aaron Smith does go down, um, they've, they've kind of painted themselves into a little bit of a corner because you're just going to have a, a young, inexperienced guy no matter who they choose. And so you mentioned Sean Stevenson. He was exactly in the top of you know the very next notes I have here. I said Sean Stevenson was my biggest surprise. I thought he was nailed in. But, of course, when you look at that list, it's like, okay, well, I want this guy, and I want this guy, and I want this guy, and I want this guy. Narawa, I guess, surprised me a little bit over Stevenson. Um, but, and, you know, please, again, set me right if I'm wrong about this. Caleb Clark has not been the same player since he made the decision to leave 15s to go play for 7s and try to make it the Olympics. That didn't go the way he wanted, and then he came back. And for me, he's just not been the same. Am I missing something about that? Mm. No, no, you're definitely not alone in, in thinking that. And yeah, his he's had a very interesting journey for a guy who was just pegged to be an All Black since back when he was at high school, really. Mm. Uh, he, Ian Foster's obviously a massive fan of, of his. And he he does... I think the thing about his career so far is that he has only ever been seen as just an out-and-out right winger. And mm -hmm. he's just there to catch a ball and run over some people on the way to the line. When there, He kind of showed in that last game that he played in, um, in Melbourne that he has a bit more versatility than that. They gave him a, the, a roving commission that the, the all-black wingers usually have that um, Severis did, did really well, which was to get get into the middle of the park and just hang around the ruck and disrupt the defense by adding another, adding another ball carrier to the mix, which meant that the other teams would have to switch up their defense around the ruck to deal with this threat. And Caleb did that in that, in that last test in Melbourne scored a really good try against the Wallabies there. Uh, so perhaps they see him as that kind of, kind of impact player. Uh, but at the same time, like, like I said before, all black wingers are just always picked on just whoever scores the most tries. You know, that's that's why Will Jordan got picked the way um the way he did. And, you know, all they do is just slap another jersey on him, just say, just do what you did before, you know, just stand on the one catch ball <laughs> and, and it works, you know. It, it all Will it Jordan, always does. I, I, and then as soon as and then as soon as someone else comes in super rugby and scores more tries. They just switch them out. Yeah, that's why the wingers have the the most glorious, but also the the shortest um, shelf life of of any All Black. Interesting. 
Yeah, the Will Jordan thing. He looks like somebody who shows up at your house to check the meters or something. He just looks like Joe Schmo. And then the pace he's got, but his ability to also be in the right place at the right time. Is it his vision that separates him? I and mean, it, as a fan, it almost just seems like luck. It almost just seems like, oh, hey, the ball's here, and look, I have a. F-. It's weird, but it, it, it's not just luck, right? Like he has, it's it's vision, right? Nah, he's just an amazingly talented footballer who's just managed to make the step up in, in the best way possible. It's it's almost like he plays he plays better the the, the more important that the game is. Yeah. And that's the sign of a great international sports person is that you rise to the occasion. And I mean he's going at I think a try every test that he plays, which is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean if he keeps going at that rate, he's gonna be the all black's highest try scorer ever. Uh, but the one the one thing I think that might you know hinder his career is that he's a winger and a fullback. And if you like I said, if you get in a position where you have an out and out winger and an out and out fullback and they're both playing really well and super rugby, they're the ones that are gonna get picked over a guy who can kind of do both who might not be having a uh, the better season. Yeah. That's another rugby thing that always fascinates me. On on one hand, it seems like it really helps you to be versatile and be like, no, no, I can play that. No, I can play that position. No. On the other hand, it ends up biting you in the butt sometimes. Sometimes it's like, well, it's very well, it makes it, strange. It makes I, I love it. it. It works for some people and against. It makes it easier for a coach to put you on the bench if that's mm. if that makes sense, you know, like because then they can go, well, if I put you in the 23 jersey, now you're covering center back to fullback, you know. So it's it's a blessing and a curse being a utility player. I also wondered about Falau Fakataba. I think not only is he really good, he always, like, he just provides a change of pace, especially, you know, he's playing with Aaron Smith. I, I had him sort of penciled in ahead of Finlay Christie. Um, is this just another typical under-informed fan? Uh, am I missing something where Fakataba doesn't deserve a sniff right now? No, I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting, interesting question, but I think that Falau uh, just kind of paid the price for being on a poor Super Rugby team. I know you're wearing a Highlanders jersey right now, but they were yeah. rubbish this year. It was a terrible year. Um, and when the worse they got, the more they relied on Aaron Smith. And so while Falau got, you know, a few minutes here and there. Hmm. Just lost your audio. How about now? Can you hear me now? You're back. Hooray. Is that sounding all right? Yeah, it sounds perfect. Um, you okay. were just saying um, Fakatavu was kind of suffering from a lack of playing time based on, you know, just because of how badly the Highlanders were doing this year. Yeah, yeah. I think that he, him staying at the Highlanders and signing a long-term deal uh, has kind of hindered him a little bit because he did that a couple of years out. Um, from when Aaron Smith would, everyone sort of presumed Aaron Smith would finish, which is obviously this year. Uh, and so he was always going to be sitting on the bench in the most important games, unless Aaron Smith got injured, which he never really does. Uh, and if I were him, I remember thinking at the time, 
it would have been far more advantageous for him to go to the Crusaders uh, when he mm. had a chance. Um, that's that ship's obviously sailed. Um, the good thing is next year he's going to be he's definitely going to be starting for the for the Highlanders yep. in every, every game and probably playing as close to eighty minutes as as any other halfback in the competition. So he's going to get a lot more chances to kind of rectify his career, uh, his his All Black career going forward. Um, but the problem is, is that there's another young guy that's kind of jumped in there in Cam Roygaard, um, out of the Hurricanes, who is now he's the shiny new thing, you know, like he's he's the guy that is looked looked at as a potential long term replacement, um, for Aaron Smith because he's he's a big kid, he's standing about six feet tall, he's got a good boot and he he tackles really well, um, and again it was more through circumstance that he ended up in the position there is because of TJ Perinara, who uh, is captaining the Hurricanes. So what happens when TJ comes back from injury next year, what the Hurricanes do with those two? When that's... is TJ coming back? I, I can't find anything about it. Uh, well, if you look on his Instagram, he's still got um, his, his legs still very much in a, an embrace. So it's wow. not going to be time soon, but I would suggest probably early, uh, uh, he'll be aiming for pre, uh, Hurricanes preseason. So, okay, yeah, that's that's an interesting game. situation as well. Um, uh, for those for those guys. Um, can you give us a couple of players that you're you know just really looking forward to seeing in this upcoming World Cup? Um, I'm thinking maybe you give us an obvious one, and then maybe a couple who are a little more under the radar. From the All Blacks or from other... yeah yeah from the All Blacks sorry. Uh, I mean the thing about the All Blacks is that they've really telegraphed what their top their top side is going to be. Like I could probably tell you the team that's going to get named tomorrow, like off the top of my head. Um, but I think that for me, the 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 guy who I really really want to be seeing playing well, and I mean this is probably no. You know, it's not exactly like a massive call here, but uh, Rich Mwanga, uh needs yeah. to have a huge, huge campaign and he needs to play the best best rugby of his test career if the All Blacks are going to win this World Cup. And the good news for All Black fans is that he's been doing that um, this year. He's definitely having his best All Black season yet. And it's probably because he's had to respond to the pressure that's been put on him by another guy who I really kind of want to play a big role in this, but I'm not sure where he's fitting in right now in Damien McKenzie. Oh, and so if those two and Bowden Barrett can figure out some way of all working together, we could see all three of them on the field at the same time, which would be unbelievable. Really, it's it's <laughs> funny because you just you accidentally just lobbed that one right over the plate. My very next question was, how good is Damien McKenzie right now? This past year with the Chiefs, I feel like it was his best season yet. Do you think he's even now still improving at this stage of his career? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he is. And I I think that it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years as to what path Scott Robertson takes with fullback, whether he mm. sees, well, sees Will Jordan as a fullback or he sees Damien Kinsey fullback. Because those guys could potentially play the next 50 tests. One of those guys could play the next 50 tests in that jersey or neither of them could play any. Right. So it's what those guys do. Also, I mean, McKenzie's got a huge market value at the moment. You know, he if, if he signed a contract overseas, he would be one of the highest played players in the world. Definitely. 
And so, you know, what they are going to do with him um, over the next... I know he's signed, signed with New Zealand Rugby for the next couple of years. I know, I know that much. But how are they going to fit him into their plans? Because he's uh, it's just such a stacked um, situation that those guys are in. But like I said, it's meant that it's brought the best out of Mwanga. It's brought the best out of McKenzie. And um, that's only a good thing for the... I think it's one of the reasons why the All Blacks are playing so well. So here's this this might qualify as a, a thought experiment for you. If New Zealand do go on to have a great tournament, find a lot of success in this World Cup, which Barrett brother will be the biggest key to that success? What which Barrett do the All Blacks most need to be at the top of his game? Ooh, uh, that's a great question. I would say probably Scott. Recently it's been Scott getting the headlines, right? Yeah, I would say Scott because the deficiencies in the all that game over the last few years have been their inability to really counter physicality at uh, the breakdown. And Scott's really answered that um, this year with the way he's been playing. He's been an absolute bully, which is exactly what the all Blacks have been missing is that someone who can go in there and just kick the shit out of the, out of the opposition. And, and, and you saw what he did, um, to Tate McDermott in that game, and, yeah. and, and I love Tate McDermott, but that was a that was a fantastic move. Yeah, but it just kind of summed up the way that the All Blacks needed to reassert themselves onto teams and make teams fear them again. And I would be worried if I had to play against Scott Barrett right now. And I think a lot of Test players are probably in the same thing because that guy can hurt you. Uh, and, but that's taking nothing away from the other two uh, as well. I mean, Geordie's yeah. a huge, huge part because he's gone from being a guy who was sort of on the fringe of selection last year, now being the the bolted on number twelve, yeah, um, and the thing and and the and the starting team, and Bowden obviously is a former you know world player of the year twice, and we haven't even talked about him at fullback yet in that conversation that we, that we've had um, before, and he's playing really well as well, and it finally feels like him and Moanga have figured out the best way to play and compliment both yeah. of these school kids. Um, so I had been planning to ask you the old, which team in their pool makes you the most worried? Uh, but then I went back and actually looked at the pool again, and I realized that was a stupid question. So instead of that, what is your take on getting France on the opening night of the tournament? And if you were in charge and could draw up the schedule, is that when you, you would want France or would you want to wait a couple of matches? I mean, well, the thing is, it's not the first time it's, it's happened. The All Blacks have done this before. They had, in 2011, they played France in the uh, not in the first game, but in the in the pool pool stages, and then played them again in the final. And I think that's the path that both of these teams are going to have. They're going to they're going to meet again in the in the final. Um, at the moment, that's the way I'm seeing it. If the All Blacks can get through their quarterfinal, um, it, it's funny because this game sort of means everything and it also means nothing mm. uh, because whatever side of the draw the All Blacks go to, again, if they lost and they ended up, you know, playing off against, well, I mean, it could be anybody, you know, it could be Scotland, you know, uh, they win and they play Scotland, they lose, they play Ireland. It, it doesn't really matter. It, it's just, it's just sort of delaying I mean, just uh, rolling the dice a little bit, and then they might end up in a semi-final. So, 
But then at the same time, it's so important for them to get off to a good start in the tournament. Yeah. Um, they That's what I was thinking. Psychologically, if yeah. they if they lay an egg on the opening night, the very first fixture of the entire tournament, I don't know. That must be a hard thing to bounce back from. Well, the All Blacks are also the only team that's never lost a pool game at a, at a World Cup, and it's a oh. it's it's a it's a record they definitely want to keep intact. So that will be motivating them as well. Well, that's a good one. Um, I have one final question for you, though it it might end up being two parts. Um, so, as a journalist and as a rugby fan. What are you personally most looking forward to in this World Cup? And are those two different things? Uh, what am I looking forward to? Um, sorry, no, that sounds... <laughs> uh, you can cut that, cut that bit out. I'll start that again. That was like a Welsh one there. Uh, like, what what am I even looking forward to? Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how this All Black side can potentially redeem itself after like a really rough last couple of years. And as I alluded to earlier, the New Zealand public are really believing in this team right now, which I don't, I didn't think they were going to. Um, but the way that they're playing right now is just so good that it's it's kind of feeling like a bit of a redemption arc happening um on on the other hand i could completely see them bombing out as well and so it's, it's fascinating but what i'm really looking forward to is actually the rest of it which oh okay the rest of the world cup like i'm i i, I want to see what happens in that pool with um wales and fiji you yeah. know i i want to see what happens in that pool with with scotland and and South Africa and Ireland and like who's who's going through and who's missing out and what how those games play out. Like if anything, the All Blacks are kind of in the least interesting pool, really. Yeah. Uh, the they what what's gonna go on around them is is gonna really capture the attention of of everybody. And even though I don't agree with the way that the it was all, you know, the pools were formed, like yeah way too long ago in order for it to be relevant now it has given us a hell of a lot to talk about and a hell of a lot to look forward to yeah it's weird too as a i guess i'm a, dich a dichotomous fan because on one hand i i love new zealand when they're playing i'm rooting for them in almost every other scenario i want the underdog to win i'm looking for upsets in in this world cup but just not new zealand please <laughs> well the all blacks um, the all blacks have famously only ever been underdogs in like maybe three or four games they've ever played in 2019 in the semi-final i had a feeling something was wrong and i know this is completely insane the look on owen farrell's face told said to me england knows something that new zealand don't or at least think they do and this game is not going to go right um you were there you already said like when did you first get a sinking feeling in that semi-final God. As soon as England scored, I mean that try happened after about a minute, and you could you knew something was wrong straight away. I I think that because the platitudes were put on England like so heavily, and the fact that like really they should have won that game by you know twenty thirty points, mm. um, it has glossed over a lot of the facts that 
the All Blacks did have some chances in the game. And had they been playing well, they may well have won that game. And there was a couple of there's a couple of key instances in there where you can look at it and go, well, actually, <laughs> they really blew it. Like that that was a very winnable game. Mm. Had a couple of things happened. But the official narrative is that we all have to give credit to England for the first time ever in our lives because they played a really good game. And they did. And they deserve they to win. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, you know, shy away from that. But because that uh narrative came out so strongly in the aftermath, because people could just couldn't believe the All Blacks had been whipped so badly that the other team must have been like playing with like superhuman asterisk magic potion powers <laughs> that the that the the all blacks really didn't didn't get the kind of post-mortem that they of a of their performance that they they really have and they and they and they still haven't really well all the more reason for people to buy one of your books jamie wall acclaimed writer journalist pundit and my new best friend this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Scrum of the Earth. Listeners, you can find all of Jamie's books through his own website, jamiewall.com. Oh, I'm sorry, jamiewallrugby.com. I can't recommend The Hundred Years' War enough. It is a fascinating and engaging read that just keeps you trucking along. Um, Jamie, apart from your books, where else can my listeners find your other writings? Uh, the article I mentioned earlier, of course, I'm going to link in the show notes. Where else can people find you? Uh, yeah, so my main... Um... Uh, area of employment is at Radio New Zealand on the website, which is rnz.co.nz. Um, you'll be able to find all my stuff on there. Um, also do a few freelance things around the place, but uh, if you just go to my website, you'll be able to find find it all there. So what's next for you? The, the 2019 Rugby World Cup spawned a book for you. Do you anticipate that happening again this year? Uh, no, I haven't had one in the works um, this year. Just been focusing on other things at the moment, um, mainly because I wasn't really that confident in the All Blacks winning the World Cup, so I didn't <laughs> um, commit uh, to it. Uh, I have been covering the rugby league team that's based in Auckland a lot this year, the the, the Warriors. Um, they've had a really fascinating season uh, as well, and I think that if I was going to do another book, it would probably be on rugby league. Oh, okay. It's another passion of mine. I think that the Hundred Years' War was my main goal. Like the one thing that I'd really, really, really wanted to write a book about, and I've and I've achieved it. Um, so I'm looking for something sort of fresh and new to sink my teeth into. I tried watching. You know, you can find the the most recent State of Origin on YouTube. I tried watching it, and there were four like outright assaults and head injuries in like the first three minutes and i was like okay i don't know if i can do this it's brutal yeah it's great isn't it yeah that's why it's so popular <laughs> <laughs> okay my friend i'm gonna let you go but not before putting you on the spot who is going to win the 2023 rugby world cup in france Oh, I guess I just predicted the All Blacks winner, wouldn't I? Didn't I? Well, the All Blacks it was gonna... implied, not necessarily. I think explicitly. That, okay, okay. Here's my definitive prediction. I think the All Blacks and France are going to play in the final, and I think France is going to win. Wow, the Intermac, uh that that doesn't change the narrative for you. No, no, no they got a good backup. Yeah, they do. Okay, that was amazing. Thank you again so much. Cheers and be well.
Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on.